The talk is about connecting and disentanglement. A subtitle is When Things Don't Go Our Way. (laughs) I'd like to begin with a poem by Stonehouse, who was a 14th century Chinese hermit. And to keep in mind that in this um, context, pine wind, the wind of the pine, is considered the Buddha's teaching. So it's called Four Mountain Postures in honor of walking, standing, sitting, and lying. Four Mountain Postures. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. That's the beginning of practice. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk? Plant a pine, a tree growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag yellow leaves fall. Nobody comes. Close the door and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, pine wind enters the ears. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. Now that's the uh, life of the practice there. The beautiful dreams are blown apart after the pine wind enters our ears the Buddha's teachings. So the Buddha's teachings are meant to help us cut through denial, passivity, indifference, not being connected with things are as they are. They're meant to help us um, break through pretending that everything is a certain way. Planting the pine tree takes great patience. It takes great patience to start with a seed, for the tree to grow to maturity, and for the wind to be able to blow through the needles, and then for that to touch our ears. The practice is a way of life, and sometimes its pace can seem so slow. But if we think of it in relationship to the time it takes to grow a tree, it's not so slow. So we learn to connect with life as it is. We can think of that as doing the best we can, and then letting go of control of the result. That's connecting and disentanglement, connecting and dispassion. True balance in life isn't passive. Letting go of control of life is very active. Doing the best we can is very active. Connecting with life without indulging or drowning, of course, takes great balance. Disentanglement without 
disconnection without repression or indifference takes great balance. So true balance is when the heart is connected to what is happening in our moment-to-moment experience, but we're not numb. We're not reacting to pain as well with aversion or attachment, that, that identification with aversion or attachment. I wanted to describe one um, way in which I have attempted to work with fear over my life. Uh, And I saw a snake on the road today, which reminded me of a snake that I had in um, long months with when I was um, 17. And the snake's name was Rosie Boa. And just to give a little background, when I was um, quite young, I think probably before I could talk, I wasn't afraid of snakes. I have memories of kind of playing with little snakes in the grass when I was very young. Uh, And my mother had this incredible phobia, you know, just this hysteria, true, I'm not exaggerating, true hysteria around snakes, which also my older sister had. Uh, So even if a snake <laughs> appears in a book or is on a television or on in a newspaper. I mean, it's, it's true crisis for days. You know, that's how big the reaction is. So I actually remember, in retrospect, watching myself become conditioned to be terrified of snakes and remembered, even when I would be terrified of a snake after time, I'd remember those times when I, when I wasn't. But I, I couldn't stop it. So I had an opportunity to volunteer at an Audubon sanctuary uh, near where I was in college when I was 17. And the sanctuary, the, the way it was set up was that there would be a raccoon, all the, all the natural animals of New England, like a woodchuck, a raccoon, um, owls. And then there was this boa constrictor that they didn't tell me about. And it was in the main building, a huge, huge, long, thick, boa constrictor. Again, they didn't tell me about it, so my first day of volunteering, they showed me around, and then the last thing they showed me was this snake. And they told me that I was supposed to take it out of the cage and, and show it to the children. And every <laughs> With true balance, right? You know? So I didn't say a thing. I just acted like that was totally okay to me. You know, uh, <laughs> and I went in early to work that next day, and I looked at the boa constrictor, and I started saying to her, "You know, <laughs> you know, I'm really afraid of you. I'm terrified. I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do." So, over time at this job, I learned that um, some children actually are enthused about snakes, and the class of children would come in, and I'd look for the person that really was excited about snakes. Uh, And this is just, I still feel humiliated when I say this, but I actually would grab the snake, throw it, and (laughs) I would, all all in one motion, I would throw it at the child that looked the most (laughs) excited about it with a a complete fake smile on my face, like, look, a boa constrictor. (laughs) 
And I thought that I was going to overcome my fear that way. You know, I really was terrified. I did this for months, and at the end of this experience, I was still terrified. Uh, and I, as I left, <laughs> happily, <laughs> after, it was horrific for me, this experience. When I finally decided to leave, I went, to, you know, again, I went to the boa constrictor and just bowed. And I said, I'm so sorry <laughs> I, I put you through this. It was, I never did quite get it. <laughs> you know, I didn't break the barrier. <laughs> with a difficult category. Uh, so in retrospect, I see that I didn't learn how to be mindful of the fear. And I tried to dominate the fear. I tried to control it. I didn't listen to my experience. And I became more afraid of snakes. And I became more afraid of the experience of fear. So fear of pain, in our lives, fear of unpleasant things takes many forms. And when we look closely, it's often the fear of the experience of fear itself. So I thought I could bulldoze my way through that experience, and I pretended to be okay. And my motivation was to get rid of it, to control it. So there was a disconnection from that experience which at first be, was an indifference, but it, that experience actually reinforced the aversion, the not liking, the fear, to a great degree. When I first started practicing and learned the metta practice, over time I started to see that for me, because uh, my resistance to fear that was a karmic knot, that loving-kindness was the first, or compassion would be the first response to the experience of fear. But it still took me quite a while to be able to connect, to actually connect to fear. It was, it was like this lost part of myself. And when I had the experience of really connecting with the fear, it was like a reunion. That experience, I still remember, as being very joyful, even though the experience of the fear was unpleasant. So the, the, the acceptance of the fear, the learning to connect with it, it didn't make the experience pleasant. But that feeling of um, connection with something difficult and knowing I wasn't afraid of it anymore, that, that, that feeling of freedom was what was joyful. The loving-kindness practice and the mindfulness practice, I know a lot of you are getting the sense of how much strength and power it gives us. When we have the experience of fear or something that's difficult for us, first it's important to notice if there's resistance and then to be mindful or have loving-kindness or compassion for that. But then if we can notice that the resistance melts, to be able to ask ourselves, what is fear? You know, what is that experience free from any ideas or concept? And to let oneself drop into the body, feel what one's feeling, but also connect to something that's neutral, like an anchor. 
with things that are difficult, with a chronic physical pain, a chronic emotional pain, or mental pain, the anchor is a refuge. It's meant to create an elasticity or flexibility of attention that can go to what's painful or difficult, unpleasant, and then to back away, to go to it and back away. So one sees that one doesn't have to stay with it all the time. In fact, uh, I learned that the most important thing for me was to learn how to back away from it, touch it a bit, go back away from it. That's learning to take the right dose of the experience. So initially what I would do once I got over my resistance to it and over that bulldozer quality (laughs) approach uh, was I'd hold my nose and dive in and terrify myself. I would try to do too much at once. The motivation was was I was going to get into it and get rid of it forever. You must know that experience. You know, I'm going to just, you know, learn how to deal with aversion, anger, while here, and then when I leave I won't have to deal with it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Any time you have an experience that when it comes back, you say, I thought I got rid of it, that's what you're here this lifetime to work with. That's your teacher for working with what's difficult. And it's what the experience of fear, how long it took me to learn how to work with it uh, was what taught me what freedom is. Because whenever it comes back, if I say, I thought I got rid of you, I know I'm not not free. And if I say, oh, you know, I've learned a lot about working with you. Maybe I can try being with you right now. And if I can't, I don't. You go to what's neutral. You move away if you don't have the strength. And this is really understanding the power of anchoring. It's a skillful retreat. That's why I've been calling it the refuge, the sanctuary. It's somewhere to go to. When you develop it over time, you'll find that it's a great refuge, a great sanctuary. Also over time, you'll see that Nothing stays so static that you have to be with the fear or you have to be with the anchor. You'll find that elasticity where you'll move away, go back in, move away, go back in. And if if it happens to slip away on you, don't worry. You'll probably get another time that you'll... (laughs) It'll appear again for you. It's quite interesting, our idea of freedom. We tend to think that we um, don't have to get rid of sounds to be free. We don't tend to think we have to get rid of sights or smell or taste or even some body sensations. But when it comes to the emotional world, somehow we have this idea that liberation is getting rid of emotion or thought. And it's a very important question to ask ourselves. Are we learning how to be free as a human? Are we trying to do something, trying to get rid of what we are, a human being with six sense doors? So for some people, fear might not be what's difficult, but it might be lust, or it might be anger. 
You know, it doesn't, it, or it could be all of the above. <laughs> you know, often it's a number of things. We get challenged by a number of things in our life. And that ability to have the balance with it where we haven't denied its, its appearance or pretended it's okay or gotten caught in it and acted out or bulldozed through it. In, in either case, we don't learn. We don't learn how to go through the experience with loving-kindness, compassion, and mindfulness. Because I feel like there has been so much fear that I repressed and it didn't, didn't pay attention to, uh, I have such joy when I'm able to say, very simply, I'm afraid. It's like a, a hallelujah. You know, that there was so much resistance for so long that experience wasn't okay. That just to say, fear, it's a, it's a wonderful experience for me. And I see that the resistance is what's so painful. We learn that over and over again. But there's an exquisiteness to the point where we can say, oh, it's just lust. It's okay. I don't have to get rid of it. I don't have to act on it. I can go through that experience. It's very important for us to know that the practice isn't meant to turn us into passive beings. It's very important that we know that we're meant to do the best we can at whatever. And then there's that little minor detail (laughs) of not being attached to the end result. We see this over and over while we're here in the retreat. It's often harder for us to see it in our daily lives. So this balance, this great balance, can take a lot of patience. I have a... um, student in Honolulu that for many years was trying to make something happen in her life that was so appropriate, you know, just a really human thing that some people want to do, was actually wanting to have a baby. And she couldn't do it. She tried and tried and tried. And um, for four years, she just was coming to me so in agony about this experience not happening. And at one point, this was, this was after four years, I, I knew that um, the P word, patience, was going to be difficult, but I finally decided to broach the subject. <laughs> uh, so I said, what about patience? And I got a very stunning, just astonishing aversion. aversion. It was like, it was such an unacceptable concept. You know, there was so much anger at even the idea of patience. And over the next four years, we really looked at what was it about patience that was so difficult for her. There were some cultural aspects to this, but I think for all of us, you know, for her, the word patience brought up the... um, sense of that it meant submission, or giving up, or not caring, indifference, disconnecting, the denial or futility 
or passivity, giving up hope versus doing the best we can and letting go. So patience is an aspect of mindfulness. It's an aspect of of loving-kindness. It's an aspect of compassion and equanimity. Patience is acceptance of things as they are. It's the acceptance that things don't always go our way. I think it's quite interesting for us that we often feel like a failure when we put a lot of energy into something and it doesn't go the way we want. You know, we can get so identified with that, and yet it's a beautiful thing to put a lot of energy into something. And it's also a beautiful thing to learn humility. In fact, I often see that for people when things don't go our way, we often learn the most. Not that that's how it should be, but it usually uh, leads us to search very deeply. It's said that there's two kinds of suffering. There's suffering and the suffering that ends suffering. So many people have been sharing with us, you know, that there's, you know, that really seeing how identification with experience is so painful. And the only way we see that, the only way we see that pain of the contraction around wanting to control experience is by going through the pain of experiencing it. It really is like holding a hot potato. Being on a long retreat, that's what you're doing. You're getting that sense of seeing the difference between peace and suffering over and over again. The holding on, the pushing away that's so painful, and the letting go. Attempting to control, attempting to manipulate, the identification with that attempt is what's so painful. This uh, student of mine, I feel, eventually came to an understanding of true patience. And it was wonderful to see um, that shifting from blaming herself, blaming others, um, to compassion, to caring about the suffering, and not giving up. It's quite a beautiful process. When things don't go our way, it is an opportunity for compassion and mindfulness. There's a great uh, Native American Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. That's such a beautiful way to approach when things don't go our way. When my sister died this year, right after she died, I had the opportunity to look at a lot of self-pity. Uh, and it, I found it interesting how much resistance I had to that experience, that it, that it somehow it wasn't something uh, that I should have. Uh, so when things were really hard, I lit candles a lot, and the lighting of the candle uh, sometimes was all I could hold on to. 
it was so painful at times. And I learned in the first few days after she died and when I could kind of manage other than being with the candles, I started to say, whimper, 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 whimper. I feel sorry for myself. I feel sorry for myself. Uh, And it finally broke the heaviness and the resistance to it. And it started to be fun. And I started walking around actually more and more going, Whimper, 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 whimper. And I was by myself, luckily, for those <laughs> for that time, so no one had to hear me going, whimper, whimper, whimper. You know, and I started to have these uh, grief tea parties by myself. And it shifted that intensity of the hardness and tightness around the pain to something that actually felt like um, kind of a celebration of learning how to go through that with some dignity and balance. We can explore anything. When we notice that things aren't going our way, it often uncovers expectation, which, which means that we're facing dukkha, we're facing an aspect of how life is. And that uncovering of expectation, when we see it, can lead to disappointment, self-blame, blaming others. But if we stay through the process of being mindful mindful through that, I notice each time I go through a round like this in my life, there's a gradual lowering of expectation. And I'll say to people that I think the practice over time is the gradual lowering of expectation. And people will sometimes laugh and think I'm not serious. But it's true. Beginner's mind. You'll hear us say that the practice is all about the spirit of starting again, and starting again, and starting again. It's called sometimes beginner's mind. Letting go of control of result. Letting go of control of expectation. It's that sense of receiving with the begging bowl, just having our arms open and receiving what's on our plate in this moment, the next moment. What is it that causes this disconnect? What causes that indifference? It's a kind of arrogance that we think things should go the way we want them. We're lost in delusion. We want to be in control. And there's so many ways this can happen for us. And I'm grateful for the early times in my life that I noticed this. Also that year when I was 17, um, I found a professor that was really one of my first benefactors. And he was a naturalist. Uh, And he had a beautiful garden outside a dormitory. And the dormitory had a lot of... um, what we called in those days jocks that had a lot of beer, beer parties, all-night beer parties, right up above this beautiful garden. And I noticed that he had quite a long-range vision, which was what attracted me to taking courses with him. And one day I was watching the sunrise over this pond right by this dormitory. It was one of those moments where I started to understand connecting with life and the joy 
of being just fully present. It was such an ecstatic experience. I was getting quite lost in the experience. I wasn't noticing how happy I was. I was getting higher and higher and higher, and it was more and more beautiful. Uh, and just at the moment that the sun was coming up, a few, a few guys started vomiting outside <laughs> the window of the dorm. And I couldn't put those two experiences together, you know? It was like, it was so painful. I, I was so happy and so caught in that experience of beauty and that it was felt so ugly and so disgusting. Uh, and my mind just, my heart split. It was just, how do you accept that? And I couldn't. And I suffered tremendously over that experience. And over that year, this professor would have to deal with actually getting hit sometimes by a beer bottle out his window. And he kept this, he had this faith. He had this incredible deep faith. He was a Quaker. Uh, and I noticed just over the years, I knew him for most of my life since then. And I was always just so touched by this big picture he had, this commitment to ecology environmentalism, and teaching people even if they were totally resistant, even if it was that painful. How do we hold that range of experience? Well, I found that I needed mindfulness, equanimity, compassion, patience. There can be small things that happen, like today I was going up the road and I saw a dead squirrel. Uh, that was earlier this morning. And then this afternoon when I was going back down, um, I saw a turkey vulture eating the squirrel. How do we hold that, that shift from life to death to predator and prey? And it requires this unconditional love, the unconditional acceptance and so often, when we're asking why, we really need to be asking what. What is happening right now? What is happening right now? And what is this internal response or reaction to what is in life? Where I learned this the most clearly was some years ago, I was rear-ended by a truck on the highway driving in Honolulu at a stoplight, uh, and the, the next day after this accident, it was so painful. <laughs> the just physical sensations in my body were so painful, and I kept asking why, why? And that, that question was getting me into more and more aversion and aversion, and more and more disconnected from what was happening in my body. And finally, I thought, oh, maybe I should try what? Is happening right now. And I realized why I was staying with why, because why kept me out of the pain and disconnected. And what is happening brought me right into the pain, and it was like, oh, <laughs> this is really painful. It's, oh, it's just unpleasant. And once I got it, it was like, oh, it's unpleasant. Okay. It was, it was workable. Not always so easy. But that shift from why to what is so critical for us. 
You'll notice that we bow when we come into the hall. We don't ask people to bow. It's optional. And it's something we learned from our teachers who taught us this practice. And we can have different ways that we relate to bowing. But I have found over time, because I had a lot of resistance to bowing when I first was introduced to it, I was very grateful that I wasn't wasn't forced uh, over time. It just happened naturally. And when I first was able to start bowing, I would bow to the flowers because I connected with flowers. And I don't tend to connect to statues, so I still bow to flowers. Um, What do you connect to? If you find something that you connect with, you probably can bow. Uh, And I think that a Western way of bowing can often be with our hands in our pockets and a little kind of, you know, it's almost visible, but only us know we're bowing. You know, hands in the pockets. (laughs) 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 However you do it, you you, you have to find what you connect with. That's what you'll learn to bow to. I found over years that it was such a wonderful feeling to put my forehead on the earth. And it was like I was saying thank you to the earth for supporting me. You know, that was another stage of it. And then I started to see that I had this incredible opportunity in my life to bow no matter what was happening in my life, no matter how hard it was, no matter how easy it was through all the ups and downs. There's just been this surrender, surrender, surrender. We don't have to bow physically to understand that surrender. This is a quotation from Sayadaw Uyodaka, a Sayadaw, or teacher from Burma. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am not perfect. So I am scared of those who are judgmental. I want to be left alone. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dhamma and I'm happy about that. So simple. I'm just trying to practice the truth, and I'm happy about that. Mindfulness is just the intention to understand our experience rather than to judge it. When we ask why, we're already caught in judgment. When we ask what, we can bring that intention to understand rather than to judge. That's mindfulness. We can learn a lot about low energy um, in the course of a day of a human life, on retreat or not, the ups and downs of energy. And it can be an interesting place to learn about indifference because it's something that happens for us as humans over time. So say we're going along and we're sitting or 
let's say we're sitting, and slow energy or sleepiness appears, do we connect with the sleepiness or not? This can be this can be applied to any experience, but that are we indifferent? Do we close off and say, we actually usually say, I'm not sleepy, or I don't want to be sleepy, or it's so interesting to see that way where we don't want to we don't want to see that that's what's happening. That's indifference, and it can be so subtle because we're not trained to connect with that experience. Fake equanimity is that pretending that it's okay. You know, we convince ourselves that it's not really happening. Or we'll say, I don't care that I'm tired. That's the indifference. I don't care if I fall asleep. We disconnect. Fake equanimity looks like acceptance. You see, we've convinced ourselves in that time that we've accepted that we're low energy or sleepy, but actually we've disappeared on ourselves. Uh, And it's quite interesting to look closer and to see when we're pretending that we're accepting, because it looks good, yeah? It's denial and passivity, but we've convinced ourselves that we're fully enlightened (laughs) in that moment or whatever. You know, we've convinced ourselves that we're the humans we really think we should be. I have found these places the most inspiring to wake up in. They're so common. Look closely. It doesn't matter whether you fall asleep or not. What matters is if you've connected, done the best you can to stay awake, and then let go of control of the result. If you do the best to stay awake out of aversion, anger, then you're just reinforcing more anger, and then the next time sleepiness happens, you're more afraid of that experience. So this is where we start to see that the practice is about the purity of motivation. And please understand that this takes time. You know, you can't do it overnight. It's this gradual step by step by step practice. Once we learn to do it with one thing, we start to learn to do it with another and another. It takes great courage to explore indifference, to explore our pretenses, rather than trying to get rid of it. We can disconnect from disconnecting. And I found that what has helped me the most in terms of exploring indifference or this fake equanimity is, again, to allow it. And the image of a flower bud for me has been very helpful because if I just just allow myself to tighten up and close off and understand that it's a protection, and sometimes if it has become from indifference to a strong reaction of indifference, instead of just noticing closing, 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 it's like tight, 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 tight. You know, it it can be a very mild response or very strong. But it's okay. I've watched myself get so tight, just let it get so tight, 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 that eventually you have to open again. It hurts too much. You'll open again. You could even time it. 
<laughs> you'll see. If you let yourself disconnect, you'll connect again. T.S. Eliot had a great line from a poem where he said, teach us to care and not to care. You know, we watch ourselves get overly involved, controlling, um, and drown and caring almost too much. But it's really that manipulation that's the problem. And then we move over to the place where we shut the door and we say, but I don't care. And both of them are so painful. And it's okay. That's how we learn what balance is. That's how we learn what acceptance really is. If we listen to our own mind or thoughts for five minutes, we'll have great compassion for all of us human beings. Maybe ten minutes if you're kind of sleepy and you're not paying attention. But just listen to your mind for five minutes and there's so much judgment or cruelty. In my last self-retreat, I I came up with some new labels, which were sort of fun. Michelle on the podium. Ooh, ah, Michelle on the podium. That meant I was getting into a judgment attack, you know. And then there was Michelle the oracle (laughs) doing these great plans, you know. Michelle the Oracle, ha, 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 you know, it takes, (laughs) then there's local argument number 55, (laughs) and the skeptic, Uh, you know, we have these thought patterns, and if you can have some lightness and humor with them, they start being less oppressive, in fact, funny. Our judge, the judge, can be such a serious, intense energy. Uh, And if you start relating to it with some humor, it falls flat. It doesn't, it loses its power. And it is kind of interesting. I do recommend that we treat our thought process more like an AM radio on in the background, because mostly it isn't FM. You know, if... (laughs) It just... It just isn't. It's a lot of chatter, and it's a lot of um, boring, you know. (laughs) Actually, I have another label, but I thought I'll use it. It's like the reruns, you know. There's so many reruns. You'd think, you know, we get sick of these reruns on television, but at least they only rerun them once in a while. But our rerunning is just amazing, you know. It's incredible. And it takes that patience of letting it, it's, when we see it clearly, it's just thinking, or it's just judging, and there's no need to get rid of it. And when we're lost in it, it's so painful. Beginner's mind, the moment we notice that we're lost in thinking, we start again, and we start again, and we start again. And that moves, it moves from being an impatient, depressing process to a joyful process of being grateful that we've remembered again, and we've remembered again. And we can see that we can't control when we have a mindful moment. All you can do is plant the seeds. You've planted lots of seeds this retreat. You see if you plant a seed of remembering to be here, 
not only does that give us this moment, but it will also plant a seed for another moment of remembering. And that's what's so powerful. It's like, you'll see that when the conditions come together, there'll be more and more remembering. The more we forget, the more we forget to be here. The more we remember, the more we remember to be here. Henry David Thoreau said he had great faith in a seed. So I have this great faith in the seeds of mindfulness. It does happen. We do remember. So speaking of that faith, it's um, we can either get caught in the sense that the pace can seem so terrible. And whenever we're caught in time, we're impatient and it's painful. And you might not be so aware of this in terms of even your daily life here, because we forget. Um, but you can see it so much on the retreat, where we're in a place in the retreat where we get caught in evaluating and comparing. You know, what did I get from this retreat? You know, uh, it's just this putting ourselves lower than we should be. And it's also very painful. We should be somewhere else than where we are. And it's not helpful. It's so painful to be ahead of ourselves, to be ahead of ourselves, letting ourselves be on whatever step we need to. If you take the time to be on the step that you are, and you really digest it, it'll shift by itself. You'll be on the next step without even taking a step. So the more we're caught up in time and we rush and hurry, the more impossible things seem. And the less we rush, the more patient we are. We shift into this timeless world where we have all the time that we need. And it's true. With timelessness, there's no hurry. It's the paradox of life, time, and timelessness. When I, um, my last two conversations with my sister were very simple. I love you. Goodbye. I love you. Goodbye. And the, the, the time right before she died, there was still attachment in the sound of our voices. And then the last time it was like there was no attachment. We let go. And it was just incredibly moving and powerful for me to just see that shift. Uh, and when, when, <laughs> when it really comes down to it, that's what it's all about. Vipassana practice is each moment we're connecting and then we let it go. Pablo Neruda says, my duty is to love and to say goodbye. We connect, we disentangle. We connect, we disentangle. Learning that balance takes time. It's an exquisite process of learning. And I can't say enough how much we're here to learn. Can you imagine if you right now felt that you were done this lifetime? How awful that would be. 
it would be so tragic because it isn't the truth and how disconnected we would be. We have this idea that it would be great. To keep learning, what a wonderful um, gift when we get to do that. So I'd like to end with a poem by Han Shan, Cold Mountain poet, and he wrote these poems 1,200 years ago on rocks, on trees, and temple walls. So the idea is that we're trying to get to Cold Mountain. Cold Mountain is freedom. We try to get to Cold Mountain, but we don't try too hard. Yeah. Who takes the Cold Mountain Road takes a road that never ends. The rivers are long and piled with rocks. The streams are wide and choked with with grass. It's not the rain that makes the moss slick, and it's not the wind that makes the pines moan. Who can get past the tangles of the world and sit with me in the clouds? The cold mountain road, it's a road that never ends. And we're learning more and more to really deeply connect and disentangle, connect, disentangle. We can do it. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.